Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by my fellow co-founder, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for joining me. Hey, Reed, good to be here. Also on board today is senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie, Stuart Stevens. Stu, welcome back. Great to be here, thanks for inviting me. So today we're gonna continue our conversation about corporate responsibility especially companies who've broken their pledge to not financially support members of Congress who voted to overturn the 2020 presidential election results back on January 6th. But before we get to that, I want to talk about what's going on down in Georgia and the General Assembly's continuing efforts to revive Jim Crow. And so, Rick and Stu, I want to open the conversation with just a quick rundown of what it is the current legislation would do if passed. Impose identification requirements for absentee voting limit the use of ballot drop boxes, disqualify most provisional ballots cast outside voters' home precincts, and make it a misdemeanor to provide food or soft drinks to voters as they wait in line. And Georgia lawmakers are hoping to finalize this by next week, March 31st, when the General Assembly will adjourn. And so, Stu, I think that there's a retrospective piece of this and there's a prospective piece of this. Obviously, I think Republicans in Georgia are very upset that not only Joe Biden won the presidential race in November of last year, but then subsequently John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock won the Georgia U.S. Senate runoff against two incumbent Republicans. That seems to be one of the driving forces. And the next is, as we've said before, the party in Georgia and elsewhere seems to have abandoned the marketplace of ideas. So they're just trying to make it harder for folks who disagree with them to actually cast a vote. Yeah, look, I mean, anytime you have major election laws being passed and you ask yourself would these laws be in play if one party won and the answer is no that's usually a bad sign because the idea is you know you're supposed to do uh, have these laws that would serve all the people that funny kind of quaint idea this is just so transparent the georgia republican party did a miserable job last year they managed to lose a presidential race And then they managed to lose two very winnable Senate seats. I mean, you really got to work at screwing something up that bad. And so their reaction, instead of asking themselves, like, why is it that we're in Georgia and we're losing races and we're supposed to be the center-right party? What are we doing wrong? Their response is, well, let's do what we can to pick the jury, decide who's going to vote, and we'll be able to uh, get the outcome we want. It's in the same spirit as the jelly bean counters, uh, give us a literacy test before you vote that was hallmarks of the Jim Crow era. So, Rick, there's the piece of this that Stewart speaks to, right, which is making it harder for folks who don't agree with, let's say, Republican candidates or policies. But, you know, when it comes to Georgia in the context of 2020, Donald Trump didn't do himself or his party any favors here either, right? No, he was out saying, don't vote by mail. Let's not forget The four or five weeks before the election, Donald Trump was 
like a crazy man saying that vote by mail was fraudulent. It was riddled with fraud. And so millions of Republicans across the country decided not to vote by mail. Now, was that George Soros? No, it was not. It was Donald Trump. Well, and it was not only that, it was, if you think about the Georgia runoff, right, you had geniuses like Roger Stone out there saying that, you know, don't vote for these senators because they're in the pocket of Mitch McConnell. They're not really for Donald Trump. And so you had this, you know, not only Trump being unhelpful in his own way, I assume, you know, in some ways just, you know, the voters were confused. Well, who do I go with? Do I go with these Republicans? Do I go with Trump? And it looks like just based on the outcome, a lot of folks, at least enough folks who might have otherwise voted for David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler might have stayed home because they just decided they weren't Trumpy enough, which I think should probably give Republicans going into 2022 some pause. Let me just say something about this mail thing. I'm old enough to remember when Republicans prided themselves on their mail program. It was like a a rite of passage for political operatives coming up to work in the absentee vote project that the senatorial committee particularly specialized in. I mean, if you go back to Connie Mack in Florida, he didn't know that he won for what, two days? because it was a vote by mail, had to be counted. So the weird thing about this is we used to say that we did this better than Democrats. Well, and we did. I worked in both Florida and Wisconsin in the 90s and 2000s. In 1994, the then party chairman of the state party of Florida, a guy named Tom Slade, a classic character, like hard-drinking, two-fisted guy, said, well, this absentee mail stuff seems like it's a good idea. We should put a lot into that. And they did. And Florida turned red in large part because we got really aggressive about absentee balloting all the time. And it was one of the main reasons we were able to go in and contact people who had certain issue sets, whether it was guns or abortion or taxes, and hammer away at them and say, hey, you can vote early. You can vote absentee. Let's do that. And it worked. And so Trump blowing it out from underneath their feet is an amazing loss of control. Well, and for folks who don't know as much about how an absentee ballot strategy works, and this worked for Republicans, not just in the states you all mentioned, but also in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, is because every voter roll in every state is public information. Campaigns buy that either directly from the state or they have a vendor who has it. You know, if your state allows for permanent absentee ballots, you're marked that way. If you are requested an absentee ballot, that is marked on your record. So campaigns have a list of the people who they know will receive a ballot in their mailbox. And what that means is that if you are Rick Wilson, you know, one-time registered Republican who lives in Tallahassee, Florida, I know he's going to get a ballot in his mailbox. So I know exactly when he's going to get that ballot. I'm going to send him information ahead of it arriving. Immediately after it arrives, I'm going to call him and say, Rick, cast your ballot. Once Rick has cast his ballot and it arrives back at the registrar's office or the county's office, wherever it is, Rick is marked off as having voted. So that means that not only can you make a pretty good guess that Rick voted your way, but it also means you can start to improve your targeting and become more efficient as you go forward so that by the time you get closer to Election Day, you have a better sense of how the thing's going to turn out and what it is you need to do. And there's states that are, you know, very Republican where they vote predominantly by mail, like Utah. Yeah, Utah, we have all mail. We don't do in-person voting anymore. Now, you know, I admit to being one of these people that have a sort of sentimental view toward a national moment when a country comes together, a society comes together and votes. I mean, if I had my druthers, I would have two, maybe three days of national holiday when you vote, where people are allowed to leave work with pay. But that's never going to happen. That's like a fantasy land. It's Middle Earth. All of this is about the changing America. 
And instead of embracing that, trying to become what America's becoming, they're trying to hold on to a past that was more white, the fastest declining major demographic in America are non-college educated white voters, which are Trump's base, which is now the Republican Party's base. And instead of asking themselves, what can we do to appeal to these voters, which we did in that, you know, say what you will about the post-Romney loss so-called autopsy, that's exactly what they did. And they made a prescription of what needed to be done. It was pretty obvious. And then went out and did the exact opposite thing with Donald Trump. And it's all about an unwillingness to change. And one of my favorite politicians and you know, lifelong friend and former client, Haley Barber, used to have a saying, be for the future. It's going to happen anyway. And the Republicans have just decided to be for the past. And they're going to lose this battle. It's just a question of how long. And they will have some victories along the way. So, Rick, let's talk about Georgia in particular. It is now a swing state. If you went Republican in one presidential campaign and you went Democratic in the next, it's up for grabs. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy for either side. But now we have a situation here where Georgia has become ground zero for this fight. And it is a fight that does not stop in Georgia. It's just getting started here. I think there's something like 240 plus bills of some kind that have either been introduced or already passed in a place like Iowa under the auspices of, quote, election integrity. There's a lot of folks down there, whether or not it's Stacey Abrams group, the NAACP, a lot of voter rights groups, the ACLU, have been working hard since the session started to try and push back on this stuff. You know, the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce has said that, you know, they don't support anything like this. But really, the people who can make the difference in this are probably big Atlanta and Georgia business in the donor community. And so far, they have been unwilling to come out specifically against these things. They've made sort of milquetoast statements about we're for all people being able to vote, we're for all people who are eligible should you know be able to cast their ballot, but they seem very hesitant to go after this bill or this package of bills in particular. Yeah, and look, I've talked to a lot of folks in Georgia in the last few weeks, as we all have, and essentially what's happening right now is the lobbying community in Georgia, the lobbying core, have told their corporate clients, hey, listen, this is something that's really important to the governor and the leadership. They want it. Better not get in the way of it. Same thing's happening in Florida and elsewhere. So you've got these major companies like Coca-Cola, Delta, Aflac, Home Depot, major Georgia companies. And right now, it's the government affairs people in the room talking about this to them. And they're saying, you know, it's just the inside baseball. Nobody cares. Well, I think they will care when their brands become associated with a set of bills that are unquestionably oriented toward reducing African-American voter participation in the elections in the state of Georgia. They are unquestionably about reinstituting a series of barriers and adding friction to the system so that the quote-unquote wrong people don't have an easy time voting in elections. And so I think that it is the responsibility of these corporations. It's their obligation to look at where are they as corporate citizens? Where do they stand in terms of the value of their brand, the image of their brand, the image internally with their own workforces, and how their clients are going to view them as people who say the right thing when it comes to Black Lives Matter or George Floyd or, or inclusion or diversity, but they still told their people, yeah, go write the check to Senator so-and-so. Go write the check to Representative such-and-such. And it's okay. we got to deal with him on other matters. It really is going to be I think a test in some ways of the fact that most of these companies still sort of live in the pre-social media era 
and they don't fully realize that people pay attention and they're watching. So, you know, what I always said when I was doing corporate work is that the only people that the C-suite likes less than HR are PR, uh, <laughs> because what happens is those two groups of people only show up typically when something has gone wrong. They're a cost center. They're not a revenue center. And they're often going to tell the CEO or the VP for corporate comms or whoever it is that they have to do something they don't want to do. And so I think that's probably where we are. But remember that, you know, George Floyd died last May 25th after the officer leaned on his neck for nine minutes. In the wake of that, on June 3rd, Coca-Cola sent this tweet. Building a better future means joining together as we move forward. We are donating to at 100 black men as a part of the effort to end systemic racism and bring true equality to all. This is just a first step. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. So I'd like to believe that Coca-Cola is going to do right by not only the African-American community, but voters, you know, many of their constituents and many of their employees. So when we see a tragedy like George Floyd and Coca-Cola goes out and makes the statement, they make contributions financially and otherwise, do they mean it? And if they do, then why aren't they more outspoken on what we're seeing going on in the Georgia legislature right now? Yeah, you know, Coke is a unique case study in this because in many ways, Coke is an American ambassador around the world. It's symbolic of America. And they have a unique responsibility as being based in Atlanta. They are a Southern creation. And there was a period when Atlanta liked to call itself the city too busy to hate. And Coke was part of that. And they've had a mixed history on civil rights. But they really have an obligation here to do the right thing and to support what they've said that they believe in. And it's tremendously impactful in Georgia, and it sends a signal to other companies to get on board and support this. So it's a role that not many companies in America have. And I hope that they're going to take this responsibility seriously. They need to get completely on board and oppose any and all bills that will have the impact of making it more difficult for people to vote. Coca-Cola is the biggest of the bunch. And I think Stewart's point about the fact that they are not only one of the biggest brands in the country and in the world, but also represent that if that domino goes, you know, how many more go with them? They're probably under enormous pressure from, you know, not only their lobbyists, their government affairs people, certainly politicians in office, both in Georgia and around the country or maybe wherever they have maybe a bottling plant and certainly in Washington to hold the line and not do this, not wade into you know, so directly into American politics or state politics. But I think that it's interesting, you know, you read a guy like Scott Galloway, right, NYU professor, and he talks about how often, you know, success is very narrow, but in this country, failure is, for big companies, is socialized. These companies get a lot of tax breaks. They get a lot of preferential treatment, all of these things. But when the time comes, the last thing in the world they want to do is take a stand. As Stuart said, they're like an ambassador to America. They are a global brand that represents this country. And, you know, I'd like to teach the world to sing wasn't I'd like to take away voting rights. But right now, they are meaningful financial supporters of individuals and a party that is aggressively seeking to remove the rights or to make it much more difficult for people to exercise the right to vote in the state in which they're headquartered. And, you know, a lot of people on the board have outstanding records on civil rights matters. But right now, again, the government affairs people are in the room, not the people that are giving them a clear picture of what's going to happen to their brand as they become tied in deeper and deeper. And, you know, and this is one thing I don't think the folks have thought about. 
is that the Republican Party is not going to get less crazy. And they're going to be under pressure again in a year or two when they say, well, now we have to have a blood sample before you vote, whatever the kookiness of the next iteration is. And I think it's something that they, as a brand and as a corporation, should pop the brakes on right now. But it's difficult because they are being told, if you don't do this, they're going to, yeah, the, these guys are going to hurt us. But Stuart, there are so many things that don't happen. There's so many decisions that don't get made because just enough people tell you, if you do that, what's going to happen will be worse than what you have now. But it's impossible to prove a negative, and it almost would never be, right? Again, I was telling somebody earlier today, if I make a decision to drive my car into a train tunnel, seeing a light coming the other way, and someone says, you shouldn't do that, the outcome will likely be bad, that's a legitimate thing. But asking Coca-Cola to stand with the voters of Georgia and beyond does not seem to be something that's going to tangibly hurt them, you know, in the short or the long term. In fact, they'll be able to say when the time came, we did the right thing. If I was working for Coca-Cola, I would be asking myself, what do under 30, under 35 voters think about what we're doing? You know, odds are they're going to become 40 and 45. And what they are supporting tacitly, if they don't oppose all these voter suppression laws, is tremendously unpopular with younger voters. They just think it's crazy. I mean, it's become like same-sex marriage. It's sort of like, why are we talking about this? And, you know, we use this phrase probably too much, but it is the wrong side of history. And it is something that they will be proud of and be able to legitimately say that they played a major role in a pro-democratic moment, or it's something that they're going to try to cover up later and obscure what they did. It's a legacy moment. And we find ourselves in a lot of these now because we're not in a normal time. And I just keep coming back to this, that there's an appearance of normalcy now because President Biden is a normal president. We don't have a lunatic as president. But this is not a normal moment that any of us have ever experienced. You have a major part of the United States that will not concede that the 2020 election was legitimate, which means that we don't live in a democracy. And this is all an extension of this. And one of the many things that saddens me about the Republican Party is that when you know, we were drawn to the Republican Party, certainly when I was drawn to the Republican Party, it was very much the pro-democracy party. And democracy was on the march. I mean, in the Reagan era, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And democracy is receding now. And what's happening here, and it's small ways in Georgia and large ways across the country, is happening across the globe. It's happening in Europe, Hungary, Poland. You see it in the Netherlands. And it's very troubling. And the history of the end of democracies now is they usually happen at the ballot box, not with tanks, but slowly at the ballot box. And I think part of what we're about in the Lincoln Project is sounding an alarm. It's like what they say about a pandemic. What you say at the beginning will sound alarmist and at the end will seem inadequate. And we should realize that's the moment that we're in. So, Rick, I want to move on from Georgia and Coca-Cola, but I want to stay with money and politics, democracy and corporate America. Jed Legum, who writes the very informative and useful popular information blog every morning, reported that in February, AT&T's federal PAC donated up to $15,000 to Republican PACs with members who voted to overturn the Electoral College results. This is a story written based on his reporting, but in the Dallas Morning News. They gave to the House Conservatives Fund, the Republican Main Street Partnership, and the Tuesday Group PAC. 
These are all either chaired by members who voted to overturn election results or have them. So the AT&T spokesperson said this, that the PAC is still adhering to the policy it adopted in January, quote, of suspending contributions to the reelection campaigns of members of Congress who voted to object to the certification of electoral college votes. But just hang with me here because he keeps going. <laughs> quote goes on to say, we have been assured that none of the employee PAC's contributions will go toward the reelection of those members of Congress. Any future contributions to multi-candidate PACs will require such consistency with policy suspending individual contributions. Let me just say this. So in full disclosure, I did work as a consultant when I was at a PR firm for AT&T many years ago. I think all of us did at some point. Probably did, because they have vast operations, not only in Washington, D.C., but in every state across the country. I probably at one point might have written a statement like that because it does a couple of things. One, it doesn't say really much of anything. Two, it's an escape hatch for all sorts of things that you said previously in a time of duress that you now don't want to follow through with. And lastly, your lawyers have told you that it's technically true. <laughs> right. So for those listening, here's how a multi-candidate pack works. A bunch of politicians get together and say, OK, we're going to pool a bunch of money because we can take $2,800 into our individual account. But if we have this multi-candidate pack, then another pack can give us $5,000 and we can divvy that up and it goes back into our accounts because that pack can give us money. It's just a way of basically increasing what we call hard dollars, the dollars that a candidate can actually use for their own campaigns and re-election campaigns. And so what we're seeing here is that AT&T is saying, well, we're not going to give to these individual members, but we're going to give to these groups that are either led by or include these members, but we're going to make those packs promise they're not going to use that money. Now, Stu, as you know, I'm sure that there's an accountant somewhere who could divvy up AT&T's money from Cigna's money or Intel's money or whoever else. But my guess is once you're the executive director or the chairman of that pack, right, that money's all fungible, right? It comes in and they're going to spend it however they're going to spend it. And I don't believe anyway you could earmark that money anyway. You can't. You're no, not you supposed can't. to. So, Stu, like, it's bad policy. It's pretty piss poor PR, but it doesn't really come as much of a surprise. It's also bad business. The reason these companies are flourishing and are wealthy is because of the fact that the United States has been this society, this system of government that allows it to do this. And what is fundamentally happening here is that there is an attack on our system of government. When we don't have legal elections in this country, the entire framework of what our society is will shift. So how many of these people really want to be doing business in Russia? How many of you want to be doing business in Venezuela? It's very short-sighted, and it's an incredible insult to their own customers and employees. How many African-Americans work for AT&T? How many African-Americans use AT&T? It's a real slap in the face to them and a fantasy that this money isn't going to be used to support those who attempted to decertify the legal results of an election in the United States of America. But Rick, let me ask you this, too, because remember when we were talking about Coke, right, an international brand and a quintessential American brand. Now, I'm sure the three of us in any American probably over the age of 40 something had an AT&T phone on the wall of their home as a child. Right. hundred percent. But like AT&T is like Cigna. Nobody's like totally in love with their cell phone company or their health insurance company. If anything, <laughs> right. it costs too much and the service isn't very good. Right. So whereas Coca-Cola has this wellspring or this reserve of goodwill, companies like AT&T and, and Cigna, 
like they don't have that sort of overwhelming sort of good feeling amongst the general public because most of their customers detest them because they're just left with two or three bad options. That's right. It is a very different cultural feel because, as you said, nobody wakes up and goes, damn, I love having Cigna cover my health insurance. After a $15,000 deductible. Yay. There's a cultural presence that Coke has that is unique. And that unique presence is not replicated in very many other corporate spaces. They know how unique they are as a brand. And their value is derived not from how much fluid they put in bottles and ship it out in the country, but in part, their value is derived because of the image of that company. Some of these other companies are in much more delicate positions where, you know, a series of terrible news stories can turn into a bad quarter as your stock price goes down because your image gets wrapped up in something terrible, which is interesting. And I think telling, especially in the era of social media, where we see how quickly those things change. But Stuart, let me ask you this, because while Coca-Cola does have this overwhelming brand and I'm I've just finished a Coca-Cola product, nobody needs to drink Coca-Cola. Right. Nobody needs to drink Diet Coke. Well, that's debatable. Lord knows I get lectured on that often enough. (laughs) Right. But, you know, when it comes to these other companies, again, if it's AT&T or Cigna or Intel, consumers don't really have many options. Right. In the cell phone world, maybe they have three major options, four sort of smaller ones in the health insurance industry. Right. The states are carved up by which companies are allowed to operate in those places. With Intel, I would venture to say that all of our products, one way or the other, you know, are using some sort of Intel processor or chip. Or AMD. It's a duopoly, basically. Right. So they're all duopolies or whatever the version of a threeopoly is. Um, I've just made thropoly. it there. A thropoly. <laughs> um, so, Stu, like, do some of these companies, like, these, you know, customers have no place else to go. Like, we're the only ball game in town. We're just going to go do what we're going to do. Yeah, well, I think that's true until it's not true. And, you know, the history of corporate America is littered with companies that seemed to be irreplaceable and giants at the time. And that's really what they should be looking at. I mean, AT&T also, I think, owns like DirecTV and other big businesses. Do you have to watch DirecTV? No, you can do other things. They're able to get away with the stuff because people aren't paying attention, they think. You're not going to see AT&T advertising that we gave $15,000 to this pack or that pack. It's something that they want to have in the shadows. And they're paying for access, what they perceive as access. And it goes to the whole corruption of money in our politics. And again, I think that in this social media world, they're going to find it increasingly difficult to have these transactions that they believe benefit them, that they would like to keep quiet and successfully keep them quiet. I think the public is going to know more and they need to address that if they're planning for a long-term strategy. But Rick, just to finish the thought on this, one call from Kevin McCarthy to whoever the CEO of AT&T is now or the CEO of Cigna or Intel, that equals tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of interactions from customers saying, don't do this. They feel enormous pressure to do that. And so I guess my question is, you know, I think so much of what we've seen in recent American politics is a lot of Americans just throwing their hands up and saying none of this matters anyway. I think we learned that last year there's a lot of Americans waking up and understanding that it does. Look, I think people often said, you know, what is it that drives all this anger on the right and the left in this country? And they may have different prescriptions for how they want to address it. But a big part of it is that our system has become lavishly corrupt. The best lobbyists win. 
you throw money at any problem in DC and you can solve it. And I'm not exaggerating, folks, when I tell you, let's just say we had a company that said, I'm going to market a product made out of human meat. And everyone said, that's outrageous. How dare you? We could never do that. There would be people in DC who would take that on as a lobbying client and they would raise and spend millions of dollars. And slowly but surely in Washington, it would move from human meat is completely unacceptable in the market to why are you against freedom? The Dahmer <laughs> I think Rick's prescription of, uh, of that is absolutely uh, dead on. And people are angry because they see how this works. They see that, you know, because a company like AT&T has a set of legislative goals and that the system is set up so that a guy like Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell can get on the phone and say, hey, you either give me what I want or I'm going to take away what you want. Doesn't matter about the merits of the argument. It is right down to the venal nut of power politics and power and money are the handmaidens in Washington, D.C. of the situation we have found ourselves in. Well. I think with that thought, Rick, as frustrating and concerning as it may be, I think you're probably right. We'll leave it there today. But I think the good news is for those listening is, you know, you do have a lot of power. As Stuart said, we all have agency. You know, you do get to choose whether or not you use AT&T or T-Mobile or Verizon or something else. You, you don't have to watch DirecTV. You don't have to watch HBO. You know, maybe health insurance is a little bit harder. But folks do have the opportunity to make their voices heard. And as we've said before, where corporate America is right now vis-a-vis -vis politics is the last place in the world they want to be. And we should not let them off the hook one iota, whether or not that's in Georgia, in Florida, in Washington, D.C., or anywhere. So, Rick, before we get out of here, where can we find you online? I am at the Rick Wilson on the Twitter machine. And Stuart, how about you? Stuart P. Stevens on the Twitter machine. All right. And you can find me at Reed Galen on Twitter. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking, with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.